Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. taconnections.com. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Hello, everybody, and thanks for the download. Hello to our loyal listeners, and welcome to our newbies. I'm Ben Baldanza, and thanks for joining us at Airlines Confidential. And I'm Chris Chimes. Let me second that welcome. We've got a lot to cover today with news, a conversation with Elise Eberwein, the EVP of People and Communications at American Airlines, and then your listener questions as always. So let's get to it. First up, Ben, a frequent topic, Boeing. It was the tale of two Boeings this past week. On the positive side, there's word circulating of a big Delta order for the 737 MAX. And Alaska Airlines announced it was accelerating plans to retire its 40 Airbus aircraft as it consolidates to an all-Boeing fleet. Alaska also said it was going to retire its Dash 8Q400 prop aircraft as it moves to an all-Embraer 175 fleet for its Horizon Regional line. On the negative side, of course, there was the crash of the 737-800 operated by China Eastern that at press time is still under murky circumstances. And China Eastern had grounded its entire fleet of 223 737-800s for emergency inspections. And then the FAA has reportedly advised Boeing that the 737 MAX 10 may not win certification by year end, as was expected. So Ben, I'm not sure there's a question here. I'm kind of just rambling and talking out loud, waiting for you to jump in, but Say something, please. Okay, yeah, lots of news on Boeing. So let's sort of break some of these things down. The 737 MAX, after being grounded for almost two years, undoubtedly is now a much safer airplane. And now that pilots are going into simulator training to learn it, they fully documented the MCAS system in the operating manuals, it's likely that any airline flying that plane now is just going to be much safer than before the plane was grounded. One thing you didn't mention is that the single individual at Boeing, Mark Forkner, who had been charged with a crime in this, was acquitted this past week too. So it also appears that no individual at Boeing is going to be prosecuted for anything as a result of those two terrible crashes. That's an interesting thing, and I don't know if any of our listeners will have any comments on that. But the point is, I think Delta's order for the 737 MAX, I'm sure, was an aggressive price by Boeing does just one more thing to solidify that that plane is coming back. It was a big seller before the crashes because of its overall economics and fuel economy and range and such. And now that that comes with likely a much safer overall positioning as a result of the changes from the grounding, it's not surprising to me that that plane's going to be popular again, and I'm sure that to win Delta, 
Boeing did what it had to do on the pricing side. On the Alaska side, it's not a surprise to me that they're going to an all Boeing fleet. I'm sure it was very expensive for them to have principally a Boeing fleet and then these 40 airplanes that they had gotten from Virgin America. I'm kind of surprised this didn't happen sooner. Maybe they just didn't have enough total lift to fly everything they wanted to fly with that. But it clearly was going to be very expensive for them to operate mostly Boeings and 40 Airbus airplanes or try to build up the Airbus fleet and operate both. So airlines the size of Alaska, it just makes a lot of sense to have one airplane type. And if you talk to Southwest, they'd say you could be a lot bigger and still want one airplane type, right? And so I think that that's not a surprise and it's unfortunate for Airbus, in a sense, that they lose that one customer they had, but it's it's not a surprise. Now, on the Q400 going away, I think that almost has to be an aging thing. There's no doubt that a modern Q400, if there is such a thing, would be more efficient than an Embraer 175, would cost less to fly, burn less fuel, fewer CO2 emissions, all kinds of things. Um, yet customers like the jets better than the props. And so I am having to think that Horizon's been flying those Q400s for a long, long time. It's got to be an age and maintenance thing. And they're saying, look, if we're getting out of the turboprops, let's consolidate to the EMB 175. And just like the Boeing Airbus decision, that probably makes sense. Now, going to that China Eastern plane, you know, I'm a private pilot, so I can't speak like a commercial airline pilot. And I'm certainly not an NTSB investigator. But anyone who saw that video of that plane diving or essentially drilling itself down, flying at 90 degrees south, basically, I have to believe there's something really odd going on there. It's hard for a plane to do that if somebody doesn't want it to do that. And so they've only found the cockpit voice recorder as of this recording, and I've not seen any news reports about what they've learned from that. They're still looking for the data recorder again as we record this. So I'm sure we're going to learn more over time. But my speculation, Chris, and it's just speculation, is that there was more than an airplane problem here. Because even if there was like an explosion in the plane or something, I don't see how it would have got that positioning to fly straight down into the ground as opposed to some sort of weird glide. I guess it's possible if there was an explosion and it ruptured, maybe blew the wings off or ruptured something so that there were nothing to give it glide capability, that was possible. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that it was an intentional act. But I think that's a possibility, at least. And we're going to learn a lot, I think, as they tell us what was on that cockpit voice recorder and ultimately, hopefully, find the data recorder. But obviously, a terrible 
loss of life and a terrible situation. And I bet that crash scene has been particularly difficult for investigators to try to cover because it was apparently in a mountainous sort of wooded area as well. So not a good story there for Boeing or the airline industry, but we got a lot to learn about what really happened there. And I'm sure that, you know, to the extent possible, the fact that this wasn't a max, that that was probably a positive thing in the sense that there's something else going on there. And the 737-800 actually has a very good safety record. So it's it's unusual that that plane would be involved in something like that unless something just went terribly wrong. So like a lot of our listeners and you, I'm sure too, Chris, um, sort of anxious more than eager to hear what really happened there. Yeah, you you uh, went a little further than I might just I'm naturally cautious as it relates to speculating publicly given my role as a spokesperson. But yeah, I thought that that kind of 90 degree dive of that aircraft was very odd. So I think everyone's carefully watching the outcome of the, the black box retrieval and the analysis of the data, you know, you're absolutely right too, that the acquittal of that test pilot at Boeing, that was a very big win for Boeing in general, because they just didn't need that playing out in the media. So that issue was kind of behind them as they move forward. So, you know, we've talked frequently about, they've got a long road ahead of them, but they've got a lot of smart people and a way to chart the path. But they just continue to need some more breaks. And every time it's time for a break, something else negative happens. So uh, let's let's watch this carefully. Then, Ben, our friends at Southwest have started previewing their new fare category that Bob Jordan hinted at, I think back in December. This new want to get away plus fare will be priced above the lowest fare category, the want to get away fare. Have a 33% bonus on frequent flyer points. But here's the kicker. The value of a canceled ticket can be transferred to another passenger. That's almost upending the holy grail of airline ticketing policies here in the U.S. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a real interesting change. You know, the other three big airlines, American United Delta, all have this basic economy fare that within their price structure itself gives customers the opportunity to buy up. Right, You could say, I'll buy the basic economy fare on Delta, or I'll pay Delta a little more money and maybe not get the limits that I have on my basic economy fare, whether that's a frequent fire limit or a seat assignment limit or a baggage policy limit or whatever. Since Southwest never sort of adapted that idea, they said, look, our fares are low anyway, at least they still say that, <laughs> whether it's really true or not, they still say that. And um, and so they never sort of created that. But in a way, what the want to get away plus fare does, does create that same sell up within the Southwest price structure. So now there's a reason for somebody who would otherwise want just the cheapest fare to say, you know, I might be willing to pay them a little more especially if I'm in the frequent fire plan, I get a, that 33% bonus. But also, 
if I think there's any chance that I have to cancel this ticket or something, that money's good for me in a much better way than it was before. So that at least gives customers some reason to consider paying Southwest more than the lowest price when that's an option. So I think this is a smart fare. It'll be interesting to see how much sell-up they get to this, whether the kicker on the frequent fire plan plus the value of the cancel ticket transferred to another passenger are enough of a difference for just someone buying that would otherwise buy the lowest price to say, yeah, I'll pay that. But I think it's a good effort by them. It's a smart positioning within their fare structure. And that idea of the value of a canceled ticket transfer to another passenger, it'll be very interesting to see if other airlines pick up that idea in any parts of their price structure. I recall some very, let's call them lively discussions with some revenue management and marketing people a couple decades ago when these kind of completely, absolutely non-refundable fares were first kind of put out in the marketplace and people telling me, you know, if you decide not to go to a baseball game, you don't get your money back. And I said, well, but you can give your tickets to somebody else. And, you know, that's the difference. So it's taken a long time for this to come, but I think it's a really interesting place to go. And it's going to cause some uh, soul searching, I think, with some other airlines with regard to how do they match it, or maybe they don't. You know, there's parts of the Southwest value proposition that other airlines have just chosen not to go there with. So we'll see what they come up with. Yeah. You know, when I was running Spirit, I got some legitimate pushback from customers when I used concert tickets or sports tickets as an example of why non-refundability made sense. Because people push back, well, yeah, but I could sell my tickets on StubHub or I could just give them to a friend if I wanted, right? And you can't do that with the ticket. And I was sort of, well, you know, that's right. So maybe that's just a really bad analogy or maybe we need to think about that. And now years later, Southwest puts this in a fair category Part of it may be just to test how much customers really like and use that. So very interesting by Southwest, always an innovator, and this time an interesting price, I think. Ben, Ben, I didn't want to name names, but you were the marketing executive who was discussing this with me and using the the baseball ticket analogy. So, (laughs) (laughs) I thought you might have been referring to me, but I wasn't sure. Well, I was just trying to make a general statement, but since you brought it up, uh, let's let's be clear. Yeah, well, you know, live and learn with those sorts of things, right? (laughs) Well, listeners, TA Connections procures over 30 million rooms annually on behalf of their clients and makes travel management easier and less expensive with AI-powered booking applications, algorithms and analytics, and negotiated rate programs. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. And this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. To help the industry achieve net zero air transport carbon emissions by 2050, Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, cleaner fuels, and greener business practices. Learn more at prattwhitney.com slash sustainability. So Ben, as we wrap up the news, Dateline Hong Kong. Last week, Hong Kong officials said they would lift their flight ban 
from nine countries effective April 1st. The list includes Australia, Canada, France, India, Nepal, Pakistan, the Philippines, Britain, and the U.S. And that ban has been in place since January. All travelers must be fully vaccinated, and they must also serve a seven-day quarantine. So this travel ban was designed to keep COVID out of Hong Kong, yet Hong Kong currently has one of the highest case rates and death case rates per capita in the world. It kind of begs the question, who wants to fly there right now? But my question to you, Ben, is about the future of a great airline, Cathay Pacific. Do we think the Chinese government cares whether that airline survives or dies? And should they? That's a great question, Chris. And uh, I have no idea what the Chinese government thinks about at any point. (laughs) But I would say that Cathay Pacific is a good example of a Chinese business that is known around the world, known for good service and known for reliable operations. So of all the things that have China attached to them, I would think that the Chinese government would think of Cathay Pacific as a bright spot around the world as to what represents China. So I would be surprised if they would want Cathay Pacific to die. I was surprised that they took this out at the time, like you said, when Hong Kong is sort of still having big challenges with COVID. And yet it is a bit consistent with around the world what's happening. It seems like whether it's the US, Europe, or Asia, that Governments are sort of saying, look, there's vaccines now, and maybe some countries are more vaccinated than others. Maybe there's still availability issues in some places, but we got to get back to travel. And maybe the powers that be in Hong Kong that have been harmed by the ban of the travel sort of won out and said, look, we need people coming here again. So maybe they just said, well, around the world, people are loosening these restrictions. So let's loosen them a bit. Now they still have the quarantine and you still have to be vaccinated. So the like you said, the question is, who's going to go when you have to quarantine for seven days? And when you step out of your quarantine, there's a lot of COVID around, right? But it's clearly better than the outright ban that they've had since January. So it's clearly an effort to say we want business back in Hong Kong. I don't think it's trying to be a direct hit on Cafe Pacific, because like I said, I would think if anything, to the extent anyone in the government has an opinion, it should be positive on them. So I think it's an interesting um, trial. It'll be interesting to watch passenger traffic in and out of Hong Kong with this change? And do we see a lot of people going or are people going to wait until they can go and not even have to quarantine again? Yeah, historically, Cathay has had a, you know, a Western bet to its management and to its culture and philosophy. I think they've lost a lot of UK citizens who are pilots um, during this last couple of years. Um, I just have to kind of wonder whether there's some people in China who think that a depleted cafe to some degree creates more opportunities for the 
mainline Chinese carriers as well, as far as their role in international aviation. So, you know, we have no way of knowing specifically. I just think it's an interesting layer of politics and aviation and culture that kind of gets mixed up in all this. And um, it's going to take a long time for that carry to recover to where it was pre-COVID, given everything that's been going on. Well, they, like uh, other carriers in the world that rely almost exclusively on long-haul traffic, are all in that kind of position. And so it's not surprising that they've had those kind of challenges. There's not that much of a short-haul domestic market for them to serve, you know, certainly within China some, but there's lots of airlines in China and lots of competition for that. Their real sweet spot is in the long haul international travel and the airlines that have been principally focused on that, like an Emirates or like a Qatar or even a British Airways to an extent, have all been hurt more than other airlines that have had strong domestic markets and have a longer uh, recovery in front of them. Well, we'll be right back with Elise Eberwine from American Airlines. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Our guest this week is Elise Eberwine, the Executive Vice President of People and Communications at American Airlines, at least for a couple more months. Elise, welcome to Airlines Confidential. Hey, thanks, Chris and Ben. It's great to be here. I'm going to flip something on you real quick in honor of April Fool's Day. And I think you had me on thinking I would answer questions, but today we're going to flip it and I'm going to ask questions of you guys so your listeners can learn a little bit more from you. So there you have it. <laughs> okay. Wow, okay. Are you calling us fools? <laughs> no. <laughs> We're all fools a little bit, I think, <laughs> given as long as we've been in this industry we and we keep coming back. So, you know, the first thing I want to do, and I guess, Chris, we'll just start with you. We'll go in reverse alphabetical order here. I, you know, you guys have such interesting guests, and I've loved learning more about all of the people you've had on so far. You have them start by just talking a little bit, telling their story a little bit. So, Chris, why don't you give us your, you know, how you came to be in the business and what you're doing today? And then, Ben, uh, you take over after that. Well, I started my career in politics. Uh, When I left Capitol Hill after five years, I went to graduate school. And when I came back, I wanted to work in one of two industries, transportation, or at the time we called it telecommunications, but now we call it technology. And... One of my friends in Washington was Linda Daschle, who had left the old A4A, the Air Transport Association, to go to the airport executives group. And she told me about this job that had become vacant because of her departure. So the last thing I wanted to do was work at a trade association lobbying, but I knew I had to start somewhere. So I eventually secured that job. It took a, took a while, but I got that job at ATA uh, lobbying and then was eventually promoted to the PR job. And from there, I was recruited to join American Airlines. So it was a boom, boom, boom over a short period of five or six years that I ended 
up where I eventually wanted to be in a corporate role. So I've been in and around travel since then. All kinds of great experiences I thought I would never, ever uh, get to enjoy or be a part of, but it's been a fascinating career. And took you all the way into cruises, I guess. I joined Carnival having never been on a cruise uh, when I joined four years ago. I've been lucky in having some great airline pass benefits over the course of my career. I kind of joke the farthest my kids have ever driven is to the airport. And so we were always an airline family and never thought about cruising. So I think we kind of still are, but we have cruised since then a few times. And I definitely see why people enjoy it. It's a great way to vacation, but I think my heart is still in the airline business. Yeah, Linda. Linda is great. Um, she'd be a good guest on your show, actually. Who was running ATA back in the day? Was that Jim May? That was before that. Bob Aronson was the president of ATA at the time. Um, so we're talking 1990-ish around then. So I'm really dating myself now. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. And, and Ben, I'll kick it over to you. Why don't you just give your listeners a little preview of, of what you've been doing. Well, sure. You know, way back when I was in college, I spent a summer in Washington, D.C. as an undergrad and worked at Amtrak. This was in the early 1980s. And that's where I got the idea that transportation would be a real interesting career. I liked the mix of big capital investment, government intervention, labor, network, even early technology at that point in things. Then I went to graduate school for transportation. And while I was there, got a private pilot license and decided that planes were going to be the most fun form of that rather than trains and went to work at American Airlines as an intern during my master's degree program and then went back there full time. And in the 1980s, American Airlines was such an innovative place to be. The industry had been deregulated in 1978, not that long ago at that point. And run by Bob Crandall, he sort of counted on the finance department to be involved in all the big decisions, whether they were fleet or route expansion or labor or frequent flyer, things like that. So over five years at American, I got to work on a whole bunch of things. That's where I met Doug Parker and Tom Horton and a lot of people who've gone on to do great things in the industry. And then I went over to Northwest Airlines. Then I spent one year at UPS thinking it would be fun to leave the business and it didn't take me long to miss the business. So I went to Continental Airlines when Gordon Bethune became their CEO. Then I worked at Taka Airlines and got my first sort of P&L experience there and got to take five separate operating airlines, help merge them into one. Then went to go to work for U.S. Airways and really worked for three different U.S. Airways. I worked for the U.S. Airways that was going to merge with the United Airlines. Then I worked for the U.S. Airways in its first bankruptcy. <laughs> and, and then I uh, worked for U.S. Airways into its second bankruptcy. And it was at that point that I left and became the CEO at Spirit and spent the next 11 years at Spirit creating the ultra-low-cost carrier model in the U.S. and driving the media crazy and driving other people crazy. And I left that role in 2016 in order to just sort of have fun doing things that I want to do. So now I serve on the board at JetBlue, 
The podcast is great fun to me. I also teach a class called Airline Economics at George Mason University. And that's basically how I got to here. That's great. I should know this, but Chris and Ben, did your time overlap at American? No, but we did overlap at U.S. Airways because Chris spent some time there. And that's how we got to know each other. I think Ben was at Northwest when I was at American, and there was always a lot of tension between those two companies back in the uh, in the late nineties. So yeah, that's a right, including a well. lawsuit or two, right, Chris? Yeah, exactly. So oh dear, back in the day, you guys have both mentioned tech. I just want to want to pause on that for a minute. That that technology interested you, and transportation interested you. If you were describing, or you know, given how you think about the industry today. Have we moved out of you know transportation? Are we now technology companies? Or what's, what's your view on that, Chris? And then maybe, Ben, your thoughts. I think every company is a technology company. I think they have to think of themselves that way. I uh, was just uh, speaking at a big PR conference a couple of weeks ago and asked, asked the audience, like, how many people work in technology? How many people work in healthcare? And people are raising their hands for different venues and forums. And I'm like... I think we all feel, first of all, after the last couple of years, we all have worked in some version of healthcare, public health and health policy uh, mm-hmm. during COVID. And the same with, with technology, either in delivering better service to our customers and to our employees, or worrying about cyber attacks and other kinds of things. We're all built around technology platforms now. So I, I think even the most basic kind of company needs to think of themselves as a technology company. Yeah. Ben, how about your thoughts? I I agree with what Chris said. What's been most interesting to me about technology in the airline business is how it's changing operations in real interesting ways. The whole idea that you know, with Airbus's Airman and equivalent products from Boeing that parts on the plane know they have to be replaced long before a mechanic realizes that. And they essentially tell the mechanic, replace me now. That's fascinating. Communications in the business and the speed of social media and how that's changed things. One story that happened when Chris and I were at US Airways was there was a TV pitchman named Billy Mays, who was flying a flight into Tampa, and it was a particularly rough landing. And he tweeted about the fact that the landing was really rough on this U.S. Airways flight. And then the next day, completely unrelated, Billy Mays died. And there were media reports that U.S. Airways' rough flight kills Billy Mays. <laughs> and it was like, that's a really, it's, oh, my God, we got to stay on top of this social media stuff because things can happen. And now, whether it's Dr. Dow at United or anything, you realize that communications have become so real-time thanks to that. And now there's a company in Detroit called Rise. We had the guy on our show a little while ago who has this drone that flies around the airplane and inspects all the air, the airframe, digitizes the entire frame in about five minutes, which is going to make airplanes safer and maintenance mm-hmm. better. And so to me, that's where the technology applied to this industry is most interesting. Yeah, I agree. You know, Billy Mays, that reminds me. I mean, he, he passed young. He was 50. He's the OxyClean guy for your listeners that, that can't remember. Uh, that was... That kind of was the early sort of um, 
oh, the rumor is he died from this rough landing and now we have to react. Um, and today it's just part of the, the landscape that any, every airline deals with, with respect to social media and having to deal with those, those sort of public statements that are put out into the world. You both mentioned, um, you know, Bob Crandall, and I think you've had him on the podcast. And of course, Gordon, you know, just switching gears. And as you think back on your careers, doesn't have to be airline per se, but, and without naming names, I'm curious to just think about some of the lessons you've learned and some of your favorite experiences. Um, That's a, a broad sort of invite, I guess. And Chris, we'll start with you. Just what's some of the lessons you've learned over your career that might be helpful to those sort of starting out in their um, either transportation or technology career? Well, I loved working for Bob Crandall because he was so smart and he also wanted to have the input of people around him. It didn't always show, but he always processed the really intellectual debate in ways that got to good decisions. And he was also a master communicator. So for, for a communications person, you know, those are the days when editing was done by hand and we always got like a draft speech or a statement or a news release back with red ink. And there was always lots of red ink, Mm -hmm. but damn it. He always made it better. And, you know, shame on us for not getting to the best early, but I, I think what happens in those kinds of situations is, is, you know, he liked to be direct and to the point and logical and didn't like a lot of the flowery stuff. And I find myself now 30 plus years later writing the same kind of way in an interesting way, but to the point and making it very clear where you're trying to go with things. So I learned a lot from him. And he had that uncanny ability. And the former CEO of Expedia now, Uber Dara, has that the same ability. When Dara or Bob speak, they know where they're going to land. A lot of executives kind of wander and meander through and get somewhere. They know where they're going to go with that statement and get there and stop. And that is a skill as a communicator that, I don't think is learned as much as a natural way to kind of process information. So those were both things, again, I said that you can't learn it, but you can certainly get better at it kind of being around people like that as far as communications. And then just in the context of treating people respectfully, again, Bob will be the first to tell you he has a temper, but Mm -hmm. um, when he was out and about, people were drawn to him. And I think today's leaders have a lot of those qualities in a different kind of way. I think, you know, Bob was a generational kind of a leader with regard to kind of that's the way you did things then. Now I look at, you know, people like Doug and Ed Bastian and they're, they have a different kind of collegial way of, of interacting with employees because of the transparency. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, you're, you're always on and you have to always be on. And so I think that's a a very positive thing too, in the context of recognizing you're always on and your employees are watching you. And it's important that you comport yourself in a way that makes them proud. Yeah, Ben, I'm curious, just listening to Chris sort of describe the transparency and, you know, the era that we're in today, when you look back as a former CEO, do you think, well, thank goodness, you know, Twitter wasn't 
wasn't a thing, you know, in some of those years? Or, or how do you, I know when you were at Spirit, you certainly ran into, you know, the, the collision, I guess, of what you were doing internally and the public sort of um, reaction to some of those things. But how do you think about some of the things Chris just described with respect to transparency and communication? Well, I, I think he's exactly right. And I think one of the reasons I told that Billy May story is I think that was early in my career when I started realizing, wow, things really are changing. And so that idea of having to be always on, I think is really important for modern leaders, certainly in the airline industry. We're a 24-7 business, of course. And so things can happen at any time of day and for some airlines anywhere in the world. And so that ability to be ready, know the facts. If I could go back to my earliest days at American Airlines, one of my favorite early Bob Crandall stories, I was probably only a month or two out of college working at American Airlines as a full-time employee in the finance department and went to one of Bob's president shows that he did, you know, where a bunch of employees would come in and he would get up and talk about the company and take questions. And during that event, at one point, I don't remember the question came up, but he pointed at someone in the front and he said, everyone, this is Bob. And I don't even remember if his name was Bob, but he said, Bob runs our Oklahoma City station. Bob, tell everyone here how much you spent last month on rags in your station. And the guy like said something. And then Crandall looks out over the whole group of all these employees says, I'm telling you right now, if you run a station and you don't know how much you spend on rags, you don't know enough about your station. And as a guy, two months out of college, I was just shocked that the CEO of this huge company could be talking about a detail like that and how important that detail was. And that was really an impression on me. And so for the rest of my career, I tried to make it a point to know lots of details and not just accept that that's the way it was. And it all came from sort of that environment. And then when I worked at Continental under Gordon Bethune, another name we brought up here, what Gordon was terrific at is he could be on the ramp in the morning and speak to mechanics, be in the boardroom in the afternoon and talk to the board of directors or the senior management team, then go on CNBC in the afternoon and talk to the media, and in all cases, strike the right tone understand who the audience was and speak in a language that resonated to that audience. And to me, he was a fabulous leader to work for in part because he understood people so well and understood how to motivate and drive people. And then the last sort of story of learning that I would say is from another name we mentioned, Jerry Glass. When we were in a particularly tight labor negotiation, and Jerry was working there and I was sort of my typical bombastic, well, why does it have to be this way sort of thing in a private meeting? And Jerry looked at me and said, Ben, you have to remember, if it feels good, don't say it. <laughs> and, that, and that guidance has guided me in both my business and personal life since he said that, because I think that is such 
logical and smart advice. And there's so many times, whether I was CEO at Spirit or whether there was a situation at home with my wife and son that I just thought to myself, this feels good. I'm not going to say it. That is so funny. But, you know, Jerry used that same, gave us that same mantra at American, I don't know, years ago, might've even been U.S. Airways. And, uh, it gets repeated quite frequently. It's it's a really solid, solid advice. I want to ask you guys, what Ben, just listening to you describe these legends that you've worked for and all the things that you've done, what are you guys most proud of professionally as you as you look back on what where you've been and you know take us to now? Well, in my case, I'm most proud of really what we built at Spirit and Spirit annoyed a lot of people. And the policies of spirit got the media upset at us. And everybody thought that we were this so customer unfriendly company. But the best story I have from spirit is what really motivated me at spirit. In around uh, 2013 or 2014, a few years after the company was public, we had a visit from Nightline, which was the news magazine on TV at that time. And they, they wanted to sort of come and see how Spirit could be so profitable when everyone hated the company. So they came down and they said, can we interview people coming off the plane? And we said, of course you can. And they were surprised at that. But they would interview people when they come off and they'd say, why'd you fly Spirit? Well, because it was cheap. Did it bother you that you didn't get anything to eat or drink? It was a two-hour flight. I didn't care. Did it bother you your seat didn't recline? Oh, the seat didn't recline? I didn't notice that. Right? That's the stuff they heard. Yeah. And after a couple of hours of that, they sort of raised their hands and says, okay, I guess your customers understand this. And as we were walking out, there was a older grandmotherly looking woman sitting at the gate for a spirit flight to Atlanta from Fort Lauderdale. And they said, well, let's talk to this woman. And they asked her who she was and why she was flying spirit. And she said, my daughter lives in St. Thomas and I was visiting her in St. Thomas and I'm connecting here, going back to my home in Atlanta. And the, the guy said to her, well, couldn't you have flown nonstop to St. Thomas from Atlanta? And she looked at him like he was from Mars. And she said, oh my, Delta charges over $700 for that trip. I flew round trip with this connection for $139. I need to see my grandkids more than once every few years, you know. <laughs> and, and, and I just wanted to kiss that woman. I mean, there's no way we could have scripted an actor to say it any better. But that event made me so proud of what we were doing that despite all the negative media and the vitriol that that airline got around policies that people thought we were crazy, what really we saw ourselves doing is making travel open and possible for people who otherwise wouldn't have traveled. And that's probably what I'm most proud of. Yeah, accessible. That is, that's fantastic. Chris, what about you? I always say that uh, my time at US Airways was the best job I've ever had. You know, we got there with every expectation that the company would be liquidated by the end of the year. I want to say we, the management team that was being assembled, Ben was already there, but Dave Siegel had come in, and this was like in the spring of 2002. And, you know, people didn't think there was a reason for U.S. Airways to exist. 
and we were the first to file for bankruptcy protection during that kind of post 9-11 period. There was no playbook. We couldn't point to what other carriers had done. And we so we had to make some really tough decisions and they weren't popular ones, whether it be to terminate pensions, to renegotiate several rounds of concessions by labor, to close down the Pittsburgh hub. You know, there were all kinds of things that um, we had to do to get to a place where we were an attractive merger partner that at least your, your company, uh, America West, found a reason to merge with. But at the end of the day, well over 30,000 U.S. Airways jobs were preserved. And those employees are now part of the world's biggest airline uh, with your eventual success in Phoenix and then the merger with American uh, this past decade. And so we weren't there to be elected class president. We had to do some really unpopular things. I think we were able to do so in part because we articulated where we were trying to go, the vision that we were asking people, our employees to buy into. And at some level, there was enough trust or just concern about self-preservation that they went along with it. But to be able to kind of preserve the core of that airline, the hubs in Philadelphia and Charlotte continue to be important parts of the U.S. aviation system. Like I said, a lot of people maintain their jobs and went on to become part of the world's biggest airline. So that was something that those of us that participated in were very proud of. Like I said, we weren't the most popular people on the playground because of the things we had to do, but we were able to do them in a way that uh, preserved the enterprise. So I always say that's something I'm very proud of. No, that's that's fantastic. I mean, the, those assets, the Charlotte Hub, um, the DCA presence, and then I love that, you know, your point about, you know, some of the employees, you think about, you know, employees that started at Allegheny or Piedmont, or U.S. Air, and then becoming, you know, U.S. Airways sort of redone, and then ultimately employees and and hopefully successful retirees of the world's largest airline. I think that's really well said. I thought you were going to tell a story about, you know, in prep for this podcast, we had you had mentioned a couple of fun stories about um, Whitney, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Whitney Houston, or you said you had a Greta Van Susteren story as well. Why don't you uh, lay some of those on us? Um, pick one. Pick one. Pick okay. Whitney. Well, I, I don't like it when journalists pick on employees. Yeah. And, you know, it, airlines are kind of high profile and sometimes media personalities blur the lines. And so when they don't get their way, they use their platform to kind of pick on a company and the employees. So in this case, Greta Van Susteren was, I think it's CNN at the time. We were all at U.S. Airways and she and her husband had a house on Martha's Vineyard where we used to fly, but they had sold the house. So they weren't going back and forth all summer. And so she had lost her status as an executive platinum or whatever we called it at the time. And so she was on the air regularly saying, U.S. Airways is the world's worst airline. They deserve to go out of business. All those people should lose their jobs. They're awful, 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 awful. And so I got her on the phone and I'm like, why are you saying this? These are, you know, we're trying to preserve the airline and save these jobs. Why are you picking on yeah. us? And she said, well, if you'll give me back my executive platinum status, I'll stop. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, 
I'm like, whoa, um, how does that comply with um, CNN ethics standards? <laughs> you know, because it is a gift. Right. And she goes, I don't think they'll care. And so I said, we can't do that. And so she still kept it on doing it. And so I finally said, okay, enough. We'll give you back your status. And one of the things with having status is you can book a, a flight that's oversold. We'll figure it. We'll figure it out later. But for that very top tier, we'll sell you a seat. And so then a couple months later, um, she was on her way to Little Rock for the opening of the Bill Clinton Library, and she was one of those people who were overbooked, and there weren't a lot of seats into Little Rock. And so she's sitting at the gate, posting on social media, saying, "This stupid airline. They won't give me a seat. I'm trying to get a seat. They won't give me a seat assignment." And so I called the gate, and I was like. Do you see Greta Van Susteren? Would you please call her to the podium? I want to talk to her. And so I was like, look, you're on that flight only because I gave you status. And now you're complaining to the world that we're not giving you a seat when in fact the flight was oversold and we're going to have to bump somebody else. So knock it off, please. And we had that kind of frequently where, you know, a journalist, we had a 60 Minutes reporter when I was at U.S. Airways who, again, couldn't get seats with their kids or something. And so she's like berating the gate agents. I'm going to do a 60 Minutes expose. And I'm like, on what? <laughs> you know. And so they, they, they call the PR department and they're like, what do we do? And I said, put her on the phone. Put her on the phone right now. And I'm not going to you know, use her name. But I, I don't like, I never liked it when people picked on our employees. Um, I can deal with you know, you want to pick on the executives, you want to pick on a bigger issue, but your employees are doing their jobs. And so I've always been pretty aggressive at kind of calling people out on that. And you have to draw a line. Um, My Whitney story is a quick one. I'll add that one. Uh, When I was at American Airlines, she was on a flight. She went into the laboratory to smoke, which you're not supposed to do. And so she came out and you could smell it. And the flight attendant said, Miss Houston, there's a $2,500 fine or whatever the, whatever the dollar man is for smoking in the laboratory. You know? And so she goes and gets out her checkbook and writes a check <laughs> to American Airlines for $2,500 and says, can I go back in there and smoke? So, you know, I'm like, no, no, no. It's not a fee. It's a fine. You know? But that kind of stuff happened you know, all the time you know, with, with celebs as well. You got to just manage those things. But, you know. I just chuckle with you know just the mindset of okay I'll just I'll pay the, I'll pay the rate oh twenty five hundred bucks that's an easy thing now I'll go back in the in the lab and smoke so yeah that's a new revenue stream for somebody <laughs> out there I'm sure that's funny surprised we didn't think of that one as <laughs> yeah that's very big <laughs> I know and if you're over Colorado right you could be smoking tobacco or other things I that's suppose right. over the states that have legalized. Right. You know, you Whitney's a good segue just to close this out. I know we're getting short here on time, but Ben, tell us, what's your first concert? First concert ever? Ever. I'm going to sound so old when I say I this. Go ahead. But when I was in high school, I went and saw Sticks at the Carrier Dome. <laughs> that was my first concert. I'm so embarrassed to say that. <laughs> okay, don't be too embarrassed. I, not only is that my first concert, Sticks, but I also went to Vegas, I don't know, a month ago and saw Sticks with the Oh, there you go. <laughs> Chris, what about you? What was your first concert? I think it was either the Commodores or Supertramp. 
both excellent. (laughs) We're clearly dating ourselves, all of us. So Those are classics. Um, All right. We're going to do a little lightning round here just to get to know you guys a little bit personally. So we'll go in alphabetical order on these. Ben, we're going to start with you. Window or aisle? Aisle, unless I'm traveling with my wife, in which case I take window. But I hate asking people to move so I can go to the bathroom. Chicken or beef? Chicken. Beatles or Stones? Beatles. Tesla or a Ford 150? Ford 150. <laughs> Call me Redneck, okay? <laughs> all right, all right. Levi's or Lulu's? Levi's. Beach or Mountains? Mountains. Wingtips or Air Jordans? Ooh, Air Jordans. And are you the first to arrive at a party or the first to leave it? Usually first to leave. <laughs> Usually, you say. All right. Usually, what about, what about movies? Um, airplane, the original movie, or Snakes on a Plane? Oh, Airplane, the original movie. Okay. What's your favorite scene out of that or your favorite line? Probably the Stop Calling Me Shirley line. Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> Shirley. Or It's a Bad Day for uh, to Stop Sniffing Glue. That one, too. <laughs> Audiobook or digital, or do you like the old fashioned paper? I like the old-fashioned paper. I like to be able to physically see how much more I have to read in the book. Email or text? Text. What's your most used app that you have on your phone? Probably an app called Board Game Geek. I like to play board games. There's sort of a social site called Board Game Geek that's sort of a repository of games and people talking about games. And I tend to go there every day to see what's going on. And then I'll give you one last one. I'm gonna then I'm gonna go in reverse order to Chris. What's your favorite binge show and why? Curb Your Enthusiasm. I think it's the funniest show ever on TV. My wife hates it and says it makes her uncomfortable. And for some reason that makes me like it even more. <laughs> All right. That's awesome. Yeah. The pickle jar. That's my favorite Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where they're all trying, give me the pickle jar and they're all trying to open the pickle jar. (laughs) Sorry, Chris, you're up window or aisle? Aisle, definitely. My long legs, I got to stick them out somewhere. So, Chicken or beef? Chicken. Beatles or stones? Beatles. Tesla or F-150? Probably the truck. Levi's or Lulu's? You have to even know Lulu's, right? As Lululemon. Yeah, no, I know. My my daughter works there part-time. She's always trying to get me in those clothes. And I'm like, this dad bod is not going to do Lulu. Um, I guess Levi's. Beach or mountains? Beach. Wingtips or Air Jordans? Air Jordans. First to arrive at the party or first to leave? Uh, we're more like the last and the last. We stay to help clean up and stuff. Oh, very nice. Airplane the movie or snakes on a plane? Oh, airplane the movie. Favorite and the, line? The jive yep. talking. The jive talking with Mrs. Cleaver. <laughs> <laughs> Audiobook, digital book, regular book? Probably a regular book. I, I read so much for work, I don't enjoy reading that much anymore. But when I do, I read a hard book. Email or text? Text. And what's an app that you use very frequently, maybe that we haven't heard of or that we've heard of? The AA.com app, of course. Yes. Um, <laughs> I use WhatsApp a lot just because that's the easiest way to communicate with our shipboard team. It, the texting goes through uh, easier than the other kinds of things. So I, I probably am on WhatsApp a lot. And what's your favorite binge show? I, I think The Office. I'm Jim. I give that look all the time. So. 
<laughs> All right. Well, we're going to close this out because we're really long on time. And I just want you, I want to thank you both for uh, allowing me to switch the, switch the tables here. But for each of you, what's one question you wish someone had asked you over your career, publicly or not, that, that you've never been asked? The one question that I, that no one's ever asked, you're saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's the biggest mistake you've made in your career? No one's ever asked me that. Well, we would love to hear that right now. <laughs> doing this podcast, right? <laughs> well, let's Chris go first, then I'll decide if I want to say that. What's What's your biggest regret? Career-wise or in your life? In your career. What is your biggest regret in your career? I take the approach not to have regrets, live life without having regrets. I think from a communicator's point of view, the the one issue was kind of Early on, when you were working in PR, it was all about kind of the media relations piece. And I regret not getting into employee communications and internal earlier, because I think that's where that's where it's at. That's where companies are focused on kind of building culture and building success from the inside out sometimes. But so I wish someone had told me that earlier. That's great. And, and Ben, your, your mistake. Well, I think the biggest mistake probably I ever made was to decide to go work for UPS. And I know that's a terrible thing to say because they're a great company and they do great things for lots of people and up lots of communities. But I was like a fish out of water in that place. And it took a year of my life. But surely at least one lesson or something that you gleaned from that time that served you well. Yeah, I think it's true. I, I think what I learned there is you got to do not only what you're good at, but what you love doing. And I would think I was pretty good at what I was hired to do at UPS, but just didn't have fun in the business. And one name that never came up in this podcast that is worth bringing up is Federico Block. And he's the guy I worked for at Taka. Unfortunately, he died way too young. But Federico was a guy who used to say, you have to have fun and make money. Because if you make money and aren't having fun, life isn't worth living. And if you're having fun and not making money, it just doesn't last long. And I think that's a beautiful outlook on living. I want to know, Ben, is there a photo of you in brown shorts and a brown UPS shirt? (laughs) Not that I have one of those anywhere. I think we not that I'd show it to anyone if I had it either. We, we will make one. We can superimpose your head on the body and post it somewhere. I guys, this is all UPS drivers everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, and thanks for indulging me on the on the lightning round. There, I, I just think your listeners are going to love getting to know you guys a little bit better. I love the the way we ended there on loving what you do, love who you do it with. Love the industry you're in. I, I've been, I was at the Women in Aviation Conference last weekend in Nashville talking to, you know, kind of people just starting out in their careers and their aviation career specifically. And these were young women. And I just said, you know, find an industry that, that excites you, that, you know, that you want to know everything about. And certainly aviation aerospace provides that. And, and then find what you're good at and apply it there. And you can't go wrong. So I think that's, That's really well said, Ben. Thank you. And thank you both. This has been fun. Well, Elise, um, we were going to talk to you about your your career going from the front line to the C-suite over the course of a very successful career in the airline business. So hopefully you'll come back and we can talk about that sometime. Love to come back. For sure. You're welcome. Anytime, Elise. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for doing it this way. 
And I hope this isn't just a big April Fool, though. (laughs) Happy April Fool's all. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and thanks again to Elise for making two fools look even more foolish. (laughs) Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-plus year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. Now it's time for listener questions. Please remember to email us your questions at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, our first question is from Pascal in Miami. Good day, Ben and Chris. First and foremost, I love the show and listen to your podcast every week. Thank you for sharing so much about the workings of the aviation industry. My question is, do you think airlines at some point will require passengers, maybe sooner than later, to buy insurance from an airline as part of buying a ticket? Well, thank you, Pascal. It's an interesting point you make. If airlines are going to include insurance as part of a ticket, which that would be if it's absolutely required versus just suggested, then that would suggest that they want every person to have that insurance. They would likely have to raise their ticket prices because they will undoubtedly be paying some premium to an insurance company unless they're going to self-insure that kind of risk. So I don't think it's likely that they're going to require it. Now, would they require it for some tickets, maybe lowest price tickets, or maybe if they could somehow identify the tickets that are most likely to have an insurable claim against them? I'm not sure how well they could do that. But it just seems to me that airlines, through their contract of carriage, lay out very clearly by contract, what they will do and not do when things go wrong. And as a customer, you don't get to buy the ticket unless you agree with those rules. Now, you don't have to agree with those rules and you can buy someone else. But airlines rely on that contract of carriage to define what they do. So they feel relatively protected in a sense that they know their liability and they know their risk and exposure for things that'll happen because of what they have in the contract of carriage. So as a result of that, since requiring the insurance would require raising the ticket price by at least the amount of the premium of that insurance, I don't think it's likely that it's going to be required. Although I could see airlines doing some marketing to try to encourage more take-up of that premium. Yeah, there have been more than a couple handfuls of Caribbean nations, for example, during the post-COVID ramp-up 
back to travel and tourism in that region that have required travelers to show proof of travel insurance in order to debark on the island because they don't have the resources to take care of an outbreak of, of tourists having COVID. That's, that's different than the airline requiring it as part of the terms of a ticketing agreement. And then I think you get into all kinds of DOT pricing and international regulatory th- issues with regard to requiring an additional purchase on top of the ticket price. I know there are taxes and fees, but those taxes and fees are authorized by governments to, to collect versus an airline requiring an add-on to the fare. So it's a good question, but it gets complicated with regard to fare rules and disclosures and all kinds of other That's a good ad, Chris. Hey, Chris, do cruise lines require that cruisers have insurance? Right now, Carnival, for example, requires certain cruises going to certain islands to show proof of travel insurance. But that's because of the islands rule. That's because the islands require it. But then there are also some states, because again, we're not governed by DOT ticketing rules like airlines are. There are also some states that don't allow the requirement of guests to have travel insurance. So where we, we can, we implement the rule, but for a couple of states where we embark guests, we can't. So again, it gets complicated. Yeah. Well, Chris, we've also got a question from Stephanie from Boston, and it's for both of us. Hey, guys, you're both seasoned travelers, so I'd be interested in your thought process on this. You've paid for a first-class seat. Your flight cancels for a mechanical. The airline can get you out on the last flight out that night, but it's a middle seat in the very back of the plane. Or you can wait in the morning and take the first flight out and fly first. What do you do? You go first, Chris. <laughs> um, if I didn't have to be there first thing in the morning, I think I'd probably wait. Not because I don't like to sit and coach. I've sat and coached in backs of planes and middle seats plenty of time. I just sometimes get reluctant for the last flight out because you kind of take you're taking a chance depending on what's going on. And and I really don't like to take the last flight out. That's a personal thing because I've gotten stuck because of that. So I think I would probably wait and go in the morning, especially if you're saying it's a mechanical and so therefore the airline's going to give me a hotel room and take care of me a little bit better than chance I get to get home. That That's my take based on the scenario. That's interesting, Chris. And my take would probably be a little, a little bit different. I'm flexible when I travel, when I can be, but when it comes to coming home, I'm usually excited about that last flight home. And so if I were confident that the trip was going to fly, even though it's on a mechanical right now, and they could put me in any seat on the plane and would at least refund the difference in fare then I probably would sit in the middle seat in the back, even if the flight was real late and wake up in my own bed the next morning. That would probably be my choice. But there are certainly uncertainties of the situation. Is the flight really going to fly? Are they going to refund the different things like that? That would make me choose exactly what you what you said you would do. Yeah, no, there's, there's always a few facts that have to be 
added into the equation, um, you know, how long are you going to sit at the airport? Is this like three hours or seven hours or whatever it might be? So, yeah, depending on the city, if it's a nice place to visit, you know, maybe I spend the evening and have a nice dinner and relax and start the day fresh versus getting it at midnight and getting home at 2 a.m. So, because I've done that plenty of times too. <laughs> well, thanks for asking us that, Stephanie. That was fun. Chris, our finer wine is Ashley from Houston, and she's complaining about Southwest. I was flying with five of my friends for spring break. We wanted to sit together, but by the time we boarded, there were only single seats scattered around the plane. We tried to get the flight attendants to help, but they wouldn't. This isn't the way we wanted to start our vacation. I'm trying to be very patient here as I listen to some of these finds or wines, Ben. But Ashley, I'm sorry. This is a wine, a big, big, big wine. If you want to sit together on Southwest, that's why you check in early and get a good number. That's why if you're flying another airline and you you buy seats together, you pay for the privilege to sit together. So, you know, especially right now, I don't think flight attendants want to go looking for trouble, getting people to move around in the cabin uh, when everyone's nerves are kind of frayed anyway. So that's part of the privilege of flying Southwest and getting a a very high number at check-in is you're going to sit wherever you're going to sit and that's the way it's going to be. Well, and if you're going on spring break, Ashley, I'm sure you don't want to hear this, but you can also buy a high number at Southwest (laughs) too (laughs) and pay to be in one of those very first numbers. I'm sure you would have rather spent your money when you got to spring break than to do that just to sit together. But I've got to agree with Chris on this one. Yeah. Plus they're probably going to, if they're on their way back, they're probably going to sleep all the way anyway. That's right. Well, as we wrap up for the week, I want to give a shout out to Air New Zealand. As that part of the world begins to open up, Air New Zealand announced that it will be reinstating the Auckland to New York service in September. There was a question about whether and when a 16-hour flight like this might return, and Air New Zealand's just put a stake in the ground about its confidence in the future of ultra-long-haul service, so that was good to hear. I'm also seeing where Qantas is going to add a second flight from Melbourne, or the first flight from Melbourne, but a second flight from Australia to DFW this fall. So those are all very positive signs. Well, I think it's great that those flights are back, and that's a great shout-out. Well, my shout-out goes to the passengers earlier this month on a Fly Dubai flight from Dubai to Tirana. According to the way this was reported, A baby was crying just before takeoff, and a passenger close to the child started quietly singing the baby shark song to quiet the child. The people sitting next to that person started singing it, and within a minute, the entire plane was singing the baby shark song (laughs) to quiet the child. And I just think that's really funny. If I had been on that plane, I'd have been singing along. And it never said in the report whether the child actually stopped crying, but I hope they did. Okay, Ben, here you go. Let's sing baby shark. (laughs) <laughs> let, me you, let me hear you sing it. So, well, let's so. say goodbye. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> All right. With that, let's do say goodbye and we'll see you next week. On Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.